went, no, listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. He's a former forensic toxicologist and forensic scientist who's kindly offered to join me today to discuss his memoirs titled Shallow Graves, My Life as a Forensic Scientist on Britain's Biggest Cases, published by Bonnier Books on September 1st, 2022. Please welcome to the show, Ray Feisch. Good afternoon, Stuart. How are we doing? Not so bad. Ray's coming to me all the way from the continent. He's in Spain at the moment, where the weather, I'm told, is far warmer than here in cold old England. Yes, it's um, it's been a good time over here. I've got a place in Spain, and we come over here regular. It's better than the Britain's uh, cold, wet weather that you're having at the moment. I do not blame you. I wish I had a place in Spain. Maybe one day. Something yeah, one to, day. <laughs> something to aspire to. Before we get cracking, Ray, what we're going to do is I have an icebreaker question that I ask all of my guests. It's a different question each time, just a bit of fun, just to get the juices flowing. Completely irrelevant to what you've done or your book, what superpower do you wish you'd have? If you could have anything, what would it be? Blimey, that's a nice easy one to start with, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) We've got to get the juices flowing. Probably hindsight. Hindsight. (laughs) Yeah. you know, good one, that. Particularly if you get involved in a murder inquiry. Sarah Payne was a great example where they had a suspect. The uh, forensic science was there. What they had to do was put Sarah Payne, who was the uh, victim, into a van of the suspect, which was Roy Whiting. And basically, we spent months doing this. And in the end, it took um, our first result came after about six months of really hard work where we linked fibres from uh, the van to an item of uh, Sarah Payne's shoe, uh, shoe. In hindsight, we kept going back and everything and saying, is there something we should be doing you know, in another way? Are we going the right way and everything? So hindsight, I think, is, a, is you always look back, even when cases have been successful, on what you could have done differently if you could have um, progressed the case any quicker. So hindsight. That's a good one. That most people say, like flying or <laughs> invisibility. <laughs> I'm scared of heights. <laughs> I like that. Hindsight's a good one. We will come on to the the Sarah Payne case a little bit later yeah. in the chat. Yeah. But where are you sort of from originally, Ray? Where did you grow up? South East London, a place called Belvedere. It's on the outskirts of uh, South East London and Kent. Working class boy, brought up in a council house. My parents, my two brothers. And that's where I was originated from, South East London. I stayed in South East London for 43 years, eventually moved out into Kent. And that's where I live now. What aspirations did you have as a schoolboy? What did you want to be? Probably play for Charlton Athletic, actually. But as I wasn't good <laughs> enough, <laughs> I had to get another job. And I got into forensic science purely by chance. I'd done my A-levels. My parents, as I've said, are, you know, very much a working-class family. They made it perfectly plain I wasn't going to university. And my father's words, my late father's words were, I'm not having a son of mine laying around 18. You go and get a job. So I looked around for jobs, and that book came up for an assistant forensic scientist at the Metropolitan Police Laboratory. I applied for it and was lucky enough to get the job. 
And that really just took me into the job of forensic science. And since the first day, I never really looked back. There was nothing else I wanted to do. So, you know, I, I fell into my, my job very early on. What was the application process like for that job? It was um, quite tough. There was a, I was told later there was a huge number, hundreds of people had applied, and they were, were actually taking on about six people. So I was quite proud that I got through that. They went through the usual sort of science bits and everything, which I coped with adequately. But I think then there was a person on the board who was head of chemistry at the time, um, an Australian woman, Shirley Williams, and she she was a real sort of a disciplinarian, I've got later to find out. But on the board, she actually noticed that I was captain of the football team, vice-captain of the cricket team, and, and said, oh, you like your sport and everything. And we, we spent about 10, 15 minutes talking about sport. And I think that, as much as anything, that got me the job. I don't know whether I was employed for my science capabilities or to boost the football and cricket sides of the lab. <laughs> Sometimes it happens, though, doesn't it? You have an interview and you think, I might not be the strongest candidate, but you build a rapport with your interviewer. Little yeah. things like that. If they can work with you, it's better to have someone potentially you can work with rather than someone who might have the skills but not be as personal. I think what she was looking for was a team player. You know, and forensic science, as much as any investigation, is very much working as part of the team, knowing your part in that team. So, you know, I think team playing, that's what she was looking for. Is there any people in the forensic science area who aren't team players? So they might be in it for themselves. They might want to be the one who was known to have discovered a certain toxin inside someone, for example. Yes, there, there are um, a number of the scientists. I've got to say, working in my career, a lot of them had egos, very big egos that need massaging regular. I came across scientists that weren't built, you know, come into this sort of team players. And a number of senior officers said to me later on in my career about certain scientists, how they, they didn't want them working on their cases because you're part of an investigation team. Although, you know, an officer, police officer may ask you advice on something and you give that advice, it's not necessary. He's going to take that advice. He may go some different direction. He may have another reason for going a different direction. Now, you know, a scientist has got to realise that, that he's given his advice in the best, uh, best way he can, but the investigation team may go in a different direction. And that is down to the senior investigating officer. Why do you think so many have? an ego that needs massaging like that where do you think that stems from i don't know whether it's their personality i'm not into psychology i must admit but uh, you know none of them think they are the greatest thing and it just so happens and later on in my career we started to build this thing called a major crime team where we wanted very much team players you know it's people that sort of basically would work long hours when police investigate a murder they're known to basically hitting it hard right from the front. And it's basically known as get the bake the back of the job very early on. And they work 18-hour days to get that work done. Now, I wanted to build the same sort of thing with forensic science. And some of these people I've said about egos just really wouldn't fit into that sort of a mold of doing such sort of work and everything because they want to really work on their own for their own sort of a benefit. Was it kind of an office mentality for them, sort of nine to five, weekends off, rather oh, than 24-7? Yeah. 
Yeah, one of the one of the things I, I mentioned in the book, people that used to come up and moan about being stressed, you know, having too much work to do. I mean, basically, they came in at nine o'clock. They went for coffee at half past ten to eleven. Come back, went for lunch at one till two. Had afternoon coffee break and went home at five o'clock. Now that to me is not a stressful living. That is a that is a nine to five Monday Friday. And forensic science as a whole was seen very much as a nine to five Monday to Friday role. Hence, we didn't get involved at the early stages of murders because police officers were saying, "Look, it takes you days to get the job started." Mm. And that's the sort of mentality I wanted to change. How difficult was it to implement that? How long did it take, roughly? I became a specialist advisor when the Forensic Science Service merged in 1995-6. And it wasn't until the 2005 London Transport bombings that we actually set up this major crime sort of thing where we had... I had a great lead scientist, I must admit, I will mention her, it's Bridget March. She was absolutely brilliant as a lead biologist. But she would run a team of uh, what they're known as reporting officers, which are court officers that dictate the way the science is done. They would um, head, head a load of assistants. And basically, they signed up for this major crime team. And they signed up that we would work the lab 24 hours a day. So they signed up for at least 12-hour shifts, a minimum of 12 hours. And all leave was basically cancelled. And they signed up for that. And they got into it. And they really carried on that job. And one of the things that we promised to the counterterrorism team was if they bring exhibits in at 8 o'clock one morning, we will have all the results, including DNA profiling, done by 8 a.m. the following morning. So one lot of exhibits come in at 8 o'clock in the morning. They will have those results at 8 o'clock the following morning so they can then proceed on the next charge. And I said, as long as you don't overload the lab, we will promise that. And we did promise that and we did deliver. So there's no situations where you had to miss that deadline or you had to ask for an extension? No, we had a team of DNA scientists, we had a team of biologists and every other forensic discipline prepared and signed up for it. And I was really proud of that team. Absolutely. That sounds like a real achievement. So the, the, before you came in and introduced this structure then of, look, we need to start working more dedicated hours, we need to, you know, some, with leave, especially with the terrorism stuff in 2005. Before that, before you came in and sort of revitalized everything, what would a, a normal turnaround be for something like that rather than next day? Well, the police officers would bring the exhibits to the laboratory and they would be met by reception staff. They would make up a case file. The exhibits would go into an exhibit store. That case file would eventually wind its way up to the relevant department through a messenger system. Now, that took up to from one day to several days. It would then land on somebody's desk, the head of the department, to allocate it to a scientist. Now, that head of department may be out for a couple of days, so it would just sit there. That would then be allocated to a court reporting officer who, again, has already got you know a caseload that's backed up. So that would probably sit there again for another few days. So when you're adding all this up, we were finding the cases weren't getting started for one, two weeks sometimes. These are A, murder cases, and B, rapes with no suspect, where the forensic science could provide information about a suspect. So it was changing that mentality. Yeah, so it wasn't necessarily a case of it takes two weeks to do something. It's just a case of going through all the red tape and the channels. It's the process. It was the process that needed changing. You know, whereas when we got into the counterterrorism, 
the exhibits were coming directly in from the officers, directly into the reception, but the scientist was there to take them straight away and start on work straight away. There was no delay. Oh, fair play, fair play. Before we move on to, you mentioned after, I think it was 1996, I've got down here when the, the Met Police Lab merged with the Forensic Science Service and everything got set up as a specialist advisor, as you were at the time. Before to that, as a forensic toxicologist, are you able to break down what that role actually encompasses? Like if you, for example, applied for the job, what would the job summary be for a toxicologist? Toxicologist, basically, as a forensic toxicologist, is someone that analyzes biological fluids, blood, urine, and biological tissues, such as liver, kidney, etc., for drugs and poisons. Identify the drugs and poison present, quantify the amount present, and then interpret it for a court of law. And whether if a drug is found, whether it's the present in the blood, a therapeutic concentrations, i.e., somebody's undergoing therapy with that drug, an overdose level, or potentially a fatal level, and the same with poisons. What's the strangest thing you've discovered? Oh, you do like an easy question, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was taught to be a toxicologist by two people. One was John Jackson, one was John Taylor. They were my mentors. Uh, John Jackson was head of department. John Taylor was a reporting officer. They were my mentors. And they taught me a lot. I remember John Jackson coming out with a fictitious sort of case and asking me questions about poisoning. And he gave me a scenario. And then said, what do you do? And I come out with all these fantastic scientific tests and they were really flash. And I thought I'd answered it really well. He said, no, you don't. He said, you pick up the telephone and ask for a full background of the information, you know, before you start anything, you know, yeah. which really sort of deflated me a bit. So when one case came in, in the 90s, it was from Special Branch. And I followed this advice, remember the advice of John Jackson, get as much information because there was nothing on the file about circumstances or anything so I started asking the relevant questions and basically I realized that I wasn't going to get an answer to these questions it was just analyze it and tell us what it is and it was a white powder I analyzed it and it was in fact a compound called thallium acetate I later learned after the war in Saddam Hussein that it was from Saddam Hussein's personal stash from wow. his palace. So, you know, hence not being answering questions. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, when I heard later, it was from Stab's holies. My, my thing was, I'm not going to back that magistrate's up. There's no way you get me there. <laughs> you know, the other strange case, I suppose, in the, as far as toxicology, was in an old people's home in Epsom. This old people's home, all these sort of uh, women used to sit around the dinner table in the evening and they all had their specific place. And they preserved their place and guarded it when one day somebody sort of changed places and all hell let loose. And one old woman decided to get her own back and decided to sprinkle eye drops in the old people's food, eye mm. drops that she'd been prescribed. Two people died and several were fairly seriously ill. And it was a drug called pilocarpine, a drug that we'd never detected before, heard of before. Mm. So, you know, it was, it was, there were good cases to be had. Do you have many reference points when you're doing a role such as that? Or do you have to, like a post-mortem, it wouldn't be, I'm going to look at this first. You just follow that normal process as you normally would. Or do you have referral cases to give you an indication of what something could be? In a case like that, the one thing we had was the signs and symptoms. 
and they were salivating, et cetera, et cetera, sweating a lot. And that gave an indication of what type of poison it may be. And we sort of went down the list of these types of poison, excluded the obvious. We also had the dustbins in which contained all the waste food, which I must admit is not a particularly pleasant job to have to do, is go through um, pigs with all sort of waste. But fairly soon we got the list of drugs that were prescribed around the hospital and one the pile of carbine linked in with the symptoms and everything, and hence we went on and looked for that drug in the biological fluid and detected it in, in the deceased people. So fascinating to me. How many times, it's probably a really wild thing to ask you to put a figure on, but more often than not, if people ask you for toxicology, does it come back with a negative result and there's nothing present? Is that the most common result you would see? I don't know whether most negative is most common, because quite often there's obviously post-mortem has been done. And in drugs and poisons uh, deaths, there's not normally an obvious um, post-mortem sign. So it is down to chemical testing. Okay. Quite often, if there is no cause of death, it's drugs, poisons are suspected, there will be a positive result. The one case where, in fact, I was an SA at this time, not toxicologist. The one that was um, different was there was a death of a Russian called Alexander Pilpacheski who died whilst out jogging near his um, gated home in Kings Hill, Surrey. He was a 40-year-old man. He didn't drink to excess. He gave up smoking several years ago, looked to all intents and purposes a fit man, and he dropped down dead. Now, we'd gone through the Litvienko polonium poisoning. So one of the things that police had to exclude, they couldn't find a cause of death from the two postmortems that had been carried out. So could we exclude poisoning? And in that case, we had to exclude every sort of poison that we could basically think of, you know, either from chemical testing or from simple things like, could it be paracetamol? No, because this person wouldn't get hold of a very fit, strong young man and get enough paracetamol into him to kill him. So simple things like that. It's strange. I know. You, I think you cover that case in the book as well, don't yes, you? Yes, I do. I do. It's, 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 the one, it's the hardest thing to do in forensic science is prove a negative. Yeah, because what I found when reading some of the cases in there was that even the, like the Sarah Payne one, you knew she'd been murdered and you knew by whom it was just a case of you couldn't take that really to court for prosecution until that link was was made you needed evidence and i think it was some was it something to do with the velcro in her shoe or something had a fiber on it yeah sarah Payne went missing her family had gone to visit his parents down on the south coast near little hampton they'd had some um, um an early dinner all the adults and the children went out walking to the beach except for the grandmother I was left behind to do the washing up. After a while, the parents went off to the local pub for a drink. The children went to a field to play. Sarah fell over, started to cry, didn't want to play anymore, ran out of the field. The other children chased after her, but when they got to the main road, she was nowhere to be seen. They did see a white transit van pass by with what the oldest uh, child said basically looked like somebody was holding something like a dog down in the front well of the uh, van. She was reported missing. Extensive search was carried out over the sort of weekend. But at the same time, the Sussex police did a thing that was I thought was a very brave decision to do and also an extremely good one, was they set up a murder inquiry straight away, even though... There was no body being found. There was no evidence that she'd come to harm at that time, but they set up a murder inquiry. 
on day two of that. So she went missing on the Saturday. On the Sunday evening, they went round and visited all known paedophiles in the area. And number two on that list was Roy Whiting, who had been previously convicted of abduction of a young girl in Crawley some five, six years earlier. Whiting had a flat near the abduction scene, or quite close to the abduction scene, which overlooked the children's playground. He was seen, and basically police didn't like his answers. He was evasive. He showed no concern for Sarah Payne being missing. And basically, they went outside to think what they were going to do about Whiting. When Whiting came out and unlocked the back doors of a white transit van. Now, police didn't, there was no van registered to Whiting on the police computer at this stage, but he had opened the back of this van. So they very quickly got the keys off him and arrested him. So the van came in. It had to be forensically searched, which was done over several days with the excellent work of the Sussex Scenes of Crime people. And all the items out of that van came not only Whiting's materials, but the detritus from all the previous owner who had sold the van a week earlier. So we had hundreds of exhibits that were actually recovered from that van. And basically the forensic strategy was, can we link Sarah Payne to the inside of that van and prove that Whiting you know, had her in that van. And we went through DNA of multiple exhibits, um, kept looking, and, and for six months, we'd got nowhere in this. Two weeks after she was abducted, her body was found in a field near Pulbra, about 20 miles away from where she was abducted. And so we had the exhibits from there. But a day later, a woman had um, been driving along the road and saw a child's shoe in the side of the road in a hedge. And she recovered that shoe, took it to the police at the abduction site and said, I don't know if this is of interest to you, but I found this. That shoe was one of Sarah Payne's because when Sarah Payne was uh, found, she was naked, she had no clothes on, she didn't have any shoes. So that shoe, we managed to link back to Sarah Payne. The shoe was basically a child's shoe, but it had a Velcro strap. That Velcro strap was opened, and basically that had trapped a large number of fibres in that Velcro. A fibres expert by the name of Pat Best recovered 340 fibres from that piece of Velcro, and she catalogued every one of those fibres as colour, material, etc. And one fibre came up that she sort of looked at was a red polyester fibre, which she thought she'd remembered from other exhibits that she had examined from the van and sure enough there was a red sweatshirt the fiber was compared to the fibers from the sweatshirt and they matched so that was the first piece of evidence now that was six months after we had started work on this case other fibers then came up from the velcro strap which also matched to other items in whiting's van so we concentrated on the area where this item was and we went back to the red sweatshirt now, when that exhibit comes into the laboratory, before any DNA work done, it, it'd be taped with like sellotape to yeah. recover any hairs and fibres from that item. Went back to those, um, those sellotape tapings, looked at those and found a blonde hair, the same colour, same length as Sarah Payne's. Unfortunately, that had a root material attached to it. That root material gave a full DNA profile for the mesh Sarah Payne. So it's basically... A large amount of work and the meticulous nature that Pat Best put into that that solved that case and got the conviction on Roy Whiting. Incredible. It's an incredible 
forensic story. I mean, when I was reading it in the book, I just couldn't believe it. The minutia of detail that had to be looked at. Like you said, 340, was it? Fibres just from yeah. the Velcro strap? And that's one exhibit. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. People ask me what the sort of type of person can be a forensic scientist. The one thing they must be is they have problem-solving capabilities and C, be very meticulous in the work they do and be able to concentrate for hours and hours on end, days on end, on something that is, uh, you know, not fast-moving sometimes. Yeah, it's not a job you can go in with a half-assed attitude, really, is it? No, definitely not. You've got to be fully committed, fully committed. Otherwise, you make mistakes. Did you see many people with that kind of mentality? I assume they wouldn't have lasted too long if they did. No, they did. It was known that basically people that stay in forensic science, and we used to say when I was when I was a youngster, if you stay in the job for between two and four years, your career is going to be a forensic scientist. But people that it's not for them, and quite rightly, some people it's not for them. They want different sort of uh, different uh, things from their um, career. Those that didn't last two years went and found other jobs. Quite rightly, too. Did you ever see people come in and think, oh, I bet they won't last long. They won't be here in six months. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that people do that in every job. I love that. One of the things I say, again, people ask me, if I want to be a forensic scientist, how should I do it? My first answer, first of all, is get a good science degree. Get a good science degree. Um, Secondly, uh, the forensic science whoever you work for in forensic science, they will teach you the forensic science and you go through an extensive training course before you're let loose on any any exhibit. And it's that training course that sorts people out, whether or not they are careful, meticulous, et cetera, et cetera. Would it have to be a specific type of science degree or would, would any science degree suffice? No, no. Um, um, most science, obviously the standard ones of biology, chemistry are the prominent ones, but any science degree will do. It's basically a degree teaches the shows you've got the ability to learn, I believe, you know, but a good science degree, it gives you the background sort of science and everything. You know, I was trained as a chemist. I've got a chemistry degree, but I had to learn biology. I had to learn DNA. So if everyone does their own in-house training, a two-part question. First, what's the kind of th- attributes they're looking for? If, if basically most people are coming in with zero experience, if they all do the training in-house. But secondly, is there um, a unified sort of set of standards that everyone has to attest to, or, or does everyone have their own version of doing analysis? No, there are there are standards or methods um, um, which are shared between because originally forensic science came from the Home Office Forensic Science Lab. And everybody that went and formed other forensic science labs would have all worked in the home office. So they took them standards with them. And there are set rules and set criteria that you have to meet and everything, which are all laid down in the sort of um, standards procedures within that laboratory. So they're looking for, like you mentioned earlier, team players, people with good problem solving skills. What's the the main things they're looking for in candidates? Basically, the interview is whether or not you can communicate good communication skills and they've got the right science degree. And they come across, when I've interviewed scientists coming to the forensic, whether you know they can sort of articulate themselves and whether they've got the enthusiasm for the job. But once they've come in, they've got the position, it's then for them to work up and you know prove their worth 
you don't start off on day one doing a murder case. You work for two or three years, basically working as an assistant. I'd worked as an assistant for seven or eight years until I got my degree. But you work as an assistant. There you prove your capabilities. And then when they think you're capable enough, you get made up to what's known as a reported officer, where you take your own cases, you write your own statements, and you attend court to give live evidence if necessary. And from then, first of all, you're taking a very minor of cases, so to speak, from assaults and everything, which is a minor case in a forensic science lab or burglaries. And then you'll work up and eventually you're you know, you do the uh, the major jobs such as the murders, the rapes, the terrorism type stuff. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. So another interesting case I'd like you to touch on briefly. You've covered so many in the book, which I'm going to leave to my listeners to go out there and read for themselves. Because trust me, this is a really interesting read, the whole book. But one that really spoke to me as far as just amazing work that you did to I know it ended up not still being solved, but it was the Adam torso in the Thames case. Yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've got to say, Adam is the one that I'm scientifically I'm most proud of, and I'll explain the reason why, hopefully. Um, just to give your listeners a little bit of the background, it was um, September the 21st, 2001. Now, that's 10 days after the 9-11 bombings. Pedestrian was walking across Tower Bridge. He was on his way to a meeting. When he looked down in the river, saw what he thought was a beer keg in the river. But when he looked down further, he realised it was the body of a, a young child. So river police got called and they launched their boat from Wapping, which was uh, downstream of Tower Bridge. And the tide was travelling upstream. And about an hour later, they recovered the body of a young child from the River Thames. When the body was recovered, a post-mortem was carried out the following day by a very experienced forensic pathologist, Dr. Mike Heath. They had the torso of a young child. It was missing its uh, head, missing both arms and both legs. So you just had the torso. And what was also strange was that the child was wearing orange shorts. Post-mortem basically showed that cause of death was a stab wound to the neck and basically the knife pulled forward very quickly. As Mike Heath said, the only thing I can resemble this to is the bloodletting of an animal. So that was the first thing, the ritual killing coming in. The limbs, he said, were skillfully removed. In fact, uh, they were basically hacked off with a knife or several knives, which were kept fairly sharp. So we had this torso of a young. Nobody had reported this child missing. At that stage, I got a call from Detective Superintendent Dave Becks, who I'd known for many years, wanted a meeting with me on the Monday to discuss the case. And he brought along with him Will O'Reilly, who was then a DI. And we discussed the case and we sort of set up a forensic strategy, what we was going to do, what we was going to look at and everything. And I'm not going to go through the all the initial sort of tests that we did. But fairly shortly afterwards, Dave Beggs went, and, um, went on to the SOAM inquiry which was running at the time, and Will O'Reilly became the SIO and became DCI. After about three months, we had done all our work. We'd done DNA. We looked to see if we could identify potential parents. None were identified. We looked at DNA from other parts of the body to try and identify an offender, and nothing was seen there. We looked at toxicology. The only thing that we found there 
was the drug called folkadine. Now, folkadine is a cough suppressant drug. Now, he would have been given this drug probably 12 to 24 hours prior to death. So we had this sort of disparity here that, hold on, this shows some sort of care for the child by giving him this, this cough mixture. But also, he was then brutally murdered. So, you know, what was going on? The shorts, it was shown, they were put on after dismemberment, after death and after dismemberment. So again, why put a pair of shorts on after death? And questions kept coming up. Will O'Reilly, why dismember him? He was only a small child, barely more than a foot long. You could have got the body of that child into any reasonable size hold. So why dismember? So all these questions kept coming up. After three months, police had done a vast amount of investigation, looking for sort of children that had gone missing, children that hadn't returned to school, and looking at immigration, child facilitation, which was um, prominent at that time. And three months, they'd gone no, got nowhere. Three months, we hadn't added anything to the case, I, I must say. The head of homicide investigation then was Commander Andy Baker, who was kind enough to do the forward for my book. He basically said he was going to set up a ring-fenced team and basically, we were going to continue this investigation. He decided to set up a meeting at Brams Hill, which was the senior staff training school, invited a number of current SIOs, number of retired SIOs, academics, medical people, et cetera, et cetera. In the morning, we gave a briefing of what we'd done today. In the afternoon, people were set tasks of saying how to progress the case. I came out of that uh, meeting at Brams Hill, one task and one task only find out as much as I can about that child from science as I possibly can. So that gave us basically a clean sheet of paper, just go and do something and go and speak to people, you know, find people that can add something to it. The first thing we sort of decided on was, could DNA give us any information? DNA, the way it's used in um, criminal investigations, basically decoded to identify people. Let's put it simplistically, but that's what it does. Although DNA, per se, gives rise to your physical characteristics, the DNA that was decoded in the forensic science thing didn't give any information about physical characteristics, i.e. skin colour, eye colour, etc., etc. So we had to look. And what we were looking for is, could we determine the provenance of this child, where this child had come from? It was a black child. We knew it was a black child. From his DNA, where was he born? I started to ask around various DNA so-called experts about doing DNA. And basically, almost everybody was blanking it, saying it can't be done. And the biologist at the lab who asked said, don't waste my time with it and their money, which I thought was a fairly um, – I wasn't too pleased with that answer, I must admit. But I eventually sort of spoke to a researcher in Birmingham at FSS Birmingham, Andy Urquhart, Dr. Andy Urquhart, late Dr. Andy Urquhart. And I said, Andy – could we do anything about this? And in my naivety, I said, look, London's a great cosmopolitan city. It's a great cosmopolitan city. It's because of all the nationalities there that mix, they form relationships, and therefore the gene pool is basically spread within that sort of city. And that's why London's a great city. But I said, if it's a, a little village in Africa, me, never having been to Africa in my life, thought that people will basically grow up in that village, they will marry within that village, they will have children within that village, and they will grow up, and therefore the gene pool will be retained within that village. Could we link his DNA to a gene pool from somewhere like that? Andy said, yeah, it's possible, I suppose, but we haven't got a database. 
so we begged, stole, borrowed sort of DNA information from anywhere we could get it, anything that had a geographical sort of link. And we carried out the tests on Adam and compared it against database. We excluded South Africa as possible where he was born and raised, excluded East Africa. What we couldn't exclude was Northwest Africa, the area around Nigeria, Cameroon, Benin, Togo, that sort of area. Okay, that's fine. But his parents could have come across, um, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. He could have been born and bred in Peckham all his life. That would have still given us the same result. But it was a start. At least we made a step forward. Next thing is um, we looked at was basically a thing called stabilised isotope analysis. I'm not going to go into the, um, the science of this too deeply, but isotopes are basically different forms of the same elements. And what we looked at then, um, there's a phrase called we are what we eat. And that is very much true in this. Now, these isotopes, the ratio of these isotopes have a geographic provenance. So you can tell whether or not a person's born bred in London from the person's isotope. I now live, when I'm there, the Wild of Kent. So my bone signature would have the Wild of Kent signature. If I moved, say, to Birmingham, it would take six years for, you know, that signature to change. You yourself live in the north? Yeah, Yorkshire. Yorkshire. You will have a Yorkshire sort of signature. So we did the stable isotope analysis on myself and yourself. It would show we live miles apart. So we got the services of Professor Kempire and did stable isotope analysis on Adam's bones. What it showed basically was he wasn't born and raised in London. So we had a child now that wasn't born and raised. We had um, the um, isotope signature for this child, and we asked, okay, if it wasn't London, where? And he come across sort of the same sort of thing that we got from the DNA of Northwest Africa around there. It comes from an area of very old rock, he said. We also had a cultural advisor on African religions on board, and he was coming into that area. So we started from the DNA, the isotope analysis, and the intelligence that the religious um, expert gave us, we were coming to Northwest Africa. So we said, that's great. Have we got a database? No, we haven't got a database. Right. Well, either we stop it here or we go and make one. Well, Andy Baker's not one for stopping, I will tell you that, because he, going back, they're taking advice from the FBI, and they basically said this case was unsolvable. Just wrap it up. You're not going to solve it. Well, that's like a red wreck to a ball to Andy because he said, we're not having the death of a young, another young black child on the streets of London unsolved, bearing in mind at the time Damanola Taylor was unsolved. So he said, we will do more. Myself, the SIO, Will O'Reilly, and Andy Urquhart had an all-expensive paid holiday, three and a half weeks to Nigeria, where we travelled all over Nigeria collecting samples for isotope analysis. Those samples be in soil animal bones from the local markets, roadkill bones. And we also I got into three mortuaries to take bone samples from human subjects that were from that area. We bought over 150 samples back to England, did the stabilised type analysis and proved that Adam came from the region of Benin City. And that is how that all sort of progressed. There was a suspect at the time, or a person of interest, I should say, from the suspect, uh, Joyce Hosagidi, 
had come into the quarry. She also came from a mean city. She was smuggled into this country from another person by the name of Kingsley Ojo, who had also come from Benin City. So it all started to fit. And the investigation proceeded on those lines. Unfortunately, Joyce had mental health problems, and she was an extremely unreliable witness. So although papers were part of the Director of Public Prosecutions, no charges were ever laid on anybody as yet. It's fascinating. I tell you, if you want to learn more about that, the, the scientific stuff, the nitty-gritty details, it's all in Ray's book, along with the Sarah Payne thing, Billy Joe Jenkins, You've got the the M25 rapist. What was it? Yes, Anthony Emiela. yeah. Litvinenko stuff on there with the polonium. And then there's another one I wrote down here. Delroy Grant. Delroy Grant, Operation Minstead. Yeah, yeah, over 17 years. And also one that came to light, if I can just briefly mention it, there was one case that I left the Forensic Science Service, which I felt was unfinished business. They were the murders of Wendy Nell and Caroline Pierce. And eventually, thankfully, they were solved, carrying on the work that I'd started. So David Fuller now is um, serving double life sentence for that. Yeah, that's that's a story I covered on someone else's show, the David Fuller. It's in, incredible read, reading about it. I read the names Wendy Nell, and I was like, I know that case. Is, is, yeah. that, the, is that the one I've covered, which it ends up being? And it's, I think right. I got an article yesterday, I think, and he's 23 more. This is the necrophilia stuff. It's been attributed to him, but people seem to be focusing on that. Well, it's identifying the victims and letting family know. That's it. But I think it's important to remember is that he's a double murderer as well. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the stuff you see online and the necrophilia stuff is terrible. It's unthinkable. Horrible. We also need to remember that he did murder two innocent women all those yeah. decades ago. And I think that just sometimes needs reiterating with his case. Yes, um, you know, as I say... I'm glad they sold it. it. was an unfinished business as far as I was concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to discuss briefly with you, because I want to save a lot of this for the book, is the transport bombings in London 2005. The one that fascinated me, and I wasn't actually aware of it, forgive my naivete, but was the 21st of July failed attacks. And that was where you, you had a lot of heavy involvement with the actual failed attacks a couple of weeks after the 7-7. Yes, that, that's... You know, as I said, we set up this major crime team and Bridget and her team had done fantastic work on 7-7, 21-7. We were turning all sorts of results around. The difference with counterterrorism offences to, say, a murder investigation. Murder investigation, you're normally looking for an offender or possibly two offenders. And once you've identified those, the case is built on that, quite rightly. But in counterterrorism, a lot more. It's not only who committed the offences, but who knew about it, who supported it, who funded it. You know, so you're looking for a wider range of people rather than just the people that actually carried out the attacks. And twenty one seven, you know, we've done all this fantastic work on on the offenders, on their and their vehicles, on the bomb factory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we got all this wonderful evidence. When I was called to a meeting on in December. 2005. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm sorry, but I thought I was being invited along for a drink. It's just before <laughs> Christmas. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, they're all going to pat each other on the back and say, what a good work we've done and have a nice little drink with a few canopies or so. When I walked into a meeting with the SIO and his investigation team, the forensic management team from the Cancer Terrorism Unit, which I worked closely with, the Forensic Explosives Laboratory and their team, and 
basically Nigel Sweeney, who was lead counsel, Max Hill, who was uh, his junior, and Alison Morgan, who was the uh, QC dealing with the disclosure. We went through and I thought, well, we're fine. The forensic science is fine here. We've done all our work. We've got no problems here as far as I was concerned. And that was true, except Nigel Sweeney asked one question, the Forensic Explosives Laboratory. What did the 21st of the 7th bombs consist of? What, what were concentrations of each of the individual ingredients? And basically they ummed and aahed and said, well, we think it contains some sort of polysaccharide, but can't tell you which one. It contains hydrogen peroxide, but we don't know the concentration of how much it is. And we knew the defence was going to be, basically, from an extradition procedure that was going on in Rome, that their defence was going to be that the 21st seventh devices were meant to just basically go off in a puff and sh- shove flour around all over everybody. They'd all see the funny side about it, and everybody walk off laughing and say, what a great prank that was. Obviously, prosecution didn't believe that. They believe they attempted to make her devices designed to kill. And the charges was conspiracy to murder. But without knowing the composition of those bombs, basically, the prosecution didn't have a case. So, again, I came out of that meeting with a series of um, jobs to do, which basically identify the ingredients in those bombs and the percentages of each ingredient so that a, a duplicate device could be made up and decide whether or not it's capable of exploding or not. So basically, the Forensic Science Service didn't deal with explosives. That wasn't my expertise. But the Forensic Explosives people said, we don't know how to do it. So I was tasked with doing it. And I'd already worked with or known Dr. Stuart Black, who took on the bulk of this work and everything. And he managed to determine that the bombs contained one-fifth or 20% chapati flour, which some of it was found in the bomb factory. It was also... 21 or 22 litres amongst five devices of hydrogen peroxide, and that was concentrated from more over 400 litres. So it actually concentrated over 400 litres of hydrogen peroxide down to 21 litres. Hence, the concentration of hydrogen peroxide went up from 18%, which was purchased, to sort of somewhere between 60 and 72% hydrogen peroxide. So that was what we gave back. They made a device up to those uh, specifications, we took it to Paulton Down and basically stood behind bunkers and detonated the device. And that device went off. And I remember thinking as I saw that device go off, fancy being in a tube train with that going off. It would be horrendous. Jesus. That was um, my introduction to explosives. Such a fascinating, you could call it an experiment, but it's so crucial with the outcome of the experiment. And yeah, the fact that yeah. now you're turning into amateur bomb mate, you're putting yourself in the shoes of those wannabe suicide bombers. Yeah, yeah. We had to, without that evidence, there would not be a case. There's not a case to answer. The defence fought that science rigorously, as they had to. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to try and get rid of that evidence. And one thing they did do was employ a retired professor who had, had never had any dealings with forensic science whatsoever as an expert for the defence. And if you really want to try and bugger up a court case, get a retired professor as an expert because they don't (laughs) know the rules. They really don't. We're brought up with disclosure. We're brought up with anti-contamination, continuity, all the things that a forensic scientist mentioned at the start about initial training and everything. These are drummed into you, whereas he didn't know anything about these. And particularly disclosure, you must disclose all of 
the work that you've done on a case to the other side, and that goes prosecution and defence. And when he was giving evidence, he thought he was going to come along and be this big professor, I'm Professor So-and-so, you know, listen to me and I, I'm going to sort this all out for you. He didn't realise that people were going to bite back at him mm. and uh, the barristers were going to attack him and everything. And when he was giving evidence, he said, oh, I've got another result here that, have you disclosed this before? No, it, it should be bag. And, <laughs> and you could see the judge physically getting more and more raging and redder, you know, yeah. this man and everything. Eventually, he stopped the trial and said, I've had enough of this. He said, right, I want Mr. Fyshe, me, go along with the counterterrorism team to his laboratory tonight and interrogate all his machines and bring every result back to the court tomorrow. So much for the early night at Woolwich Magistrate Court. Myself and DC Steve Barnett were off to Imperial College London, went into his laboratory, right, here's the machine. How do you open a data processor? He didn't know. He didn't know how to operate the machine. So then we then had to wait for a technician to be brought in from home. You know, <laughs> What a shambles. Eventually, we got all the results back. I was driven back to Woolwich Magistrate to call by Steve Barnett and uh, to get my car. It was parked there. Unfortunately, it was all locked up, so my car was locked inside so I put it to magistrate school. God. No, I lived in Kent. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, my parents lived about three miles away. So I drove, I asked Steve to drop me off, and my parents borrowed my father's car, yeah. drove myself home, and then got back the following morning and got him to drop me off at court. Oh, dear me. I said it. People that do not do forensic science think get involved with forensic science thinking, oh, it'd be a bit of fun to have go to court and everything. You've got to learn the rules. At least the right outcome was achieved in the end. That's yeah. the main thing. But how did the book come about, Ray? What was the, the big motivation to write your memoirs? I've got to say, all credit here goes to Jim Nally. I was approached to do a couple of podcasts by producer Emma Shaw. And she said, oh, I'd like to talk to you. But first of all, give us some background of your history. And everything. I went through much as I've done today. And she just sort of said, have you ever thought of writing a book? I said, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I'm, that's not my skill. Pen to paper is not my skill. But she said, oh, I do know somebody, Jim Nally. Jim and I got together with Emma and again went through my career. He said, there's a book in this. Allow me, if I may, to draft it and write it for you. After we got contract and everything, we sat down once a week and I went through one case every week and did the presentation and took him through the case and everything. And it was Jim's skill that basically, as I say, took my sort of ramblings and everything and put them into the words on those pages. And I've got to say, he's done, a fant- I think, a fantastic job. I've a couple of emails from people. One, an ex-forensic scientist, ex-forensic toxicologist, who just thought it was a great book and well-received. And one from Emma Jennings, who was the lead senior crime officer from the Fuller case as a thank you to her because she'd helped me get the information about how Fuller finally comes to task and everything. I gave her a copy of the book and she basically says, first book I've read in years. And she said, I can see you sort of speaking when, you know, when I'm reading it. So therefore the credit must go to Jim Nally. It's definitely been put together well. I'm not just saying that I flew through it. I like the fact, and it just shows how much you used to take on that. Although it's told in a chronological order, you, You'll be telling some cases in here, and it's you sort of gently remind us that bear in mind at the same time this was going on as well, or yeah, this, yeah. this was just after this had happened, or you know a lot of stuff happened in in the early two thousands really, 
early to mid 2000s. It's a fascinating book. I'm going to link it in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. I urge everyone listening to give it a shot. But is there one piece of advice before we close out, Ray, that you would perhaps give yourself, whether it's in those early days as a toxicologist or when you became a specialist advisor, anything you wish you'd known? No, I, th- I honestly believe I had the best career that anybody could have and everything. And uh, all I would say is the ending was very sad. We were closed down due to austerity. That made me angry. And I still am angry about it. The, the forensic science, particularly the London lab, where I was brought up and worked all my career, had an international reputation. You know, we had visitors from all over the world coming visiting us and asking us how to do stuff. And they just shut us down, basically. That annoyed me. I wish and I fear for forensic science in some way because the only way it's going to change is when an error comes to light. And I hope that error is not too big. That's the I think the way that things will change again, and hopefully we get back to a sort of state-funded forensic science service. I think criminal justice system deserves that. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with you there. What have you got in the pipeline then, Ray? Where can we expect to see you over the next year or two? I'm not too sure what the um, future holds. Uh, as I say, I don't, only just um, sort of retired from and gave up lecturing when uh, Emma and uh, Jim approached me about the book, and that's taken up the last couple of years. You know, there's a couple of things lined up for next year. CrimeCom, I believe I'm one of the guests there. There's a couple of other things sort of lined up, but I'm, I'm hopefully I'm going to enjoy this house in Spain a little bit. You know, <laughs> having having worked sort of fifty years in forensic yeah. science, I'm going to sort of enjoy this place in Spain. I think you deserve to put your feet up. I think that's the, well, the very least. I'll get I'll get <laughs> I'll get itchy if I'm not doing something. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not an email coming through, or you know. Yeah, I know the feeling. So thanks for the, thanks for having me on the podcast. No, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Just one final reminder, Ray's new book, Shallow Graves, My Life as a Forensic Scientist on Britain's Biggest Cases, released on September 1st by Bonnier Books. I'll put a link in the description. Thanks so much for your time. For everyone else, I'll have a normal episode out this Thursday. But until we get there, as we always say, cheerio.